Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Uh, thank you, Mike and Cynthia, for all you do to serve our church family. It's been a joy to get to know you. Happy Father's Day. You too. You got to be careful saying you too on that one. You know, on Happy Father's Day, you know, Merry Christmas, you too. Uh, you know, have a good day, you too. Happy Father's Day. Well, not always if, you know, uh, a lady sang it to you. So you got to really think about those pleasantries. All right. Well, I want us to begin by thinking about the most consequential decision you've ever made. You know, maybe there's one that clearly comes to mind, a, a weighty business dealing, perhaps, or uh, maybe something like, you know, should I marry this person? I mean, something you'd say, in terms of an earthly decision, this has, you know, very large tentacles and implications. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of that old saying. Um, they used to say, you know, I bet the farm on this. It's a way of saying, you know, this decision is of so much consequence that I, you know, to mix my metaphors, you put, you put all the poker chips in the middle, and, uh, you know, you say, I've, I've studied it, I've evaluated it, this is what I think is the best decision to make. And it's in that framework of significant decisions that I'd like to frame the discussion Jesus leads us into today about the kingdom of God. It's really about a decision that is of infinitely more consequence, infinite more consequence than any business dealing, than any person you marry, than any friend you can have. As weighty as those decisions are, it's of infinitely more significance than that about entering God's kingdom. But I want to add just one layer to that. You say, well, the wrinkle is that, that let's suppose that you have already in advance the outcome of how that decision will turn out. Uh, that's what we're presented with today, uh, something of great significance 
in which Jesus lays out plainly how it's going to shake out, and he invites everyone who sits under this word today to respond in a way that, that pleases him and I think leads to right living. So the kingdom of God, Jesus is most, uh, the theme of most of his preaching is the kingdom of God. If you've been any, you know, following us in Luke a lot, this is the backbone of his preaching, the main theme, the kingdom of God. And he begins, verse 20, you'll notice the audience here is the Pharisees, that these are the religious men uh, who are not sympathetic to Jesus' ministry. And they say, well, what about this kingdom? And you'll look at verse 21. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That he couldn't be more clear. We say, what, what is it? Is it going to come? They're expecting great supernatural signs. You know, is it going to be this, you know, just a, you know, how, how will we know? We're interpreting the stars that this was very common in Judaism of the time. Jesus is saying, no, fellas, it's right here. It's Jesus. It's right within your grasp. That where the king is, so there is the kingdom as well. That for those of us who've received Jesus as king, that we've recognized our sinfulness before a holy God, we've recognized his gracious provision in the person of Jesus, we've accepted his sacrifice on the cross for, for us, he's taken our place, that we've been reconciled to God, that we in a very real way are in the kingdom now. That we know who the king is, his spirit lives within us, and so we bear witness to the kingdom. It's, it's among us, we could say, just here. The kingdom of God is among us because the king is among us, and we know Jesus as king. But then if you look down, verses 22 and 23, Jesus switches tenses. That he now is addressing his disciples, verse 22, so his followers... And he says, the kingdom, which is associated with the coming of the, man, uh, of the Son of Man, will come. Why does Jesus speak as the kingdom of God both being a present reality and also uh, a future expectation? Uh, so this is what we can call the already and not yet of being followers of Jesus. It's precisely where a church like Providence is, that we're in the kingdom, we're bearing witness to the kingdom, and yet we long for the day when Jesus will come again to consummate all things. If you need an illustration of this, I think one of the great illustrations of this came from a New Testament scholar called Oscar Coleman, and we just celebrated this anniversary a few weeks ago on June 6, D-Day. And he said on D-Day, June 6, 1944, the Allies delivered a decisive blow when they invaded Normandy. Say the Nazis from that point, they were kind of on their back heels. Everybody kind of saw the way the scale was tipping. It was a decisive victory for the good guys. And yet, Victory in Europe Day was 11 months later, VE Day, May 1945. So for those 11 months, uh, Europe is in an already but not yet. The, the great battle had been won at D-Day. The Allies were here. They were advancing. And yet the end of the war was still in the future. And so it is with any Christian here. Say, so we know who the king is. His spirit resides in us. We bear witness to the kingdom by the way that we conduct our affairs, that is, the way we live our lives, and yet we long for the day when Jesus will come back and put this world right because we look out and we say, well, this kingdom is definitely incomplete. And so Jesus in our passage today is talking about the nature of when he will come a second time. So three uh, quick points here this morning about his second coming. First, we'll notice Jesus clearly teaches that he will endure the cross before he receives the crown. Have a look at verse 25 again. But first, so the Son of Man's going to come, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. What a thing to say. 
You know, there are two comings of Jesus. Uh, we celebrate one at Christmas time, don't we? That uh, Jesus came, the second person of the Trinity came to live among us as a babe in a manger. You say, how unimpressive. I mean, I think of all these politicians and the cameras are following them around and they're being recorded and nothing that they do is ever missed. And the king of kings came in the form of a baby. Nobody's there except the people we least expect to be there. That Jesus came the first time in humility as one of us, unimpressive, to suffer on the cross in our place, to be humiliated, to be embarrassed. And God would use that the means by which he was using to reconcile the world to himself. But the second time Jesus comes will not be like that. That he will come in power and authority and in judgment. So the Son of Man will come the second time in a different way that he came the first time. And so Jesus pronounces here, guys, the Son of Man, a direct reference from the book of Daniel in chapter 7, that this powerful figure is going to come. He's going to make all things new. He's going to reconcile a people to himself. But the means by which he does that is he's going to suffer and be rejected among his own people. Why am I making such a point of this? Not just because it's there, but because I think this has great implication for a Christian today in America. Friends, you live in the same world I do. We, we are, I'm not trying to be provocative here, we, we are not victims. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you are in no way a victim, that you are in Christ, who is the great victor, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will return again in power and authority. Say, well, a whole lot of people today are, are, you know, have some kind of badge of honor going around. Well, you know, I have all the problems in my life are because of somebody else. And here we poor Christians, you know, we were once a majority and now we're a minority. And look at this, you know, now we're the bad. Whatever it might be, say no. That Jesus himself the culture, because of the sinfulness of all of our hearts, they said no thanks to him, that he was rejected. And so when I look out and say, well, these things are rejected by the majority, ought not be a surprise to anybody who's reading the Bible, but rather to say we've got a work to do and that all of us in our natural state reject Jesus, and the only reason why any of us is here today is because God in his kindness reached down and prompted us and opened our eyes to follow Jesus. And it's in this vein that I think, if you look at verse 22, in, in, a, in a very, I think, today's passage, right, very heavy passage, look at how positive verse 22. He tells his followers, you're going to look forward to this day. You're, you're going to look forward to the day when Jesus comes again, and may that be the real desire of the church. You look out at things and say, well, it doesn't look like the, the things are kind of tipping away from us, you know, we, I don't know, we once had a cultural foothold, and now we have no cultural foothold. You remember the words of Jesus, the cross and the rejection on the way to the crown, that the church bears witness in these times, seeing in advance that most people probably will not come to Jesus, and all of us have only come to Jesus because of his kindness by giving us new hearts. So it ought to keep us humble. It also ought to, you know, give us a great reality check uh, for what we're witnessing at this cultural moment. So Jesus says, I will come again in power and authority, but the first time he came was to suffer and be rejected. And so we ought not be surprised as the church when we say, well, this is getting a little bit uncomfortable, knowing that the order is always that on the way to the decisive victory when Christ comes again and gathers all of the elect to himself. All right, point number two, the nature of the return 
Uh, three concepts that when you first hear them, you're, you'll think, well, are they contradictory? But they're not contradictory. Always when, when this comes up, Jesus will talk about inevitability, unmistakability, and unpredictability. I'll unpack each one. So first, it's inevitable. That Jesus says many times, I will come again. That it's, again, when I talked at the beginning about consequential decisions that you know in advance the way this is going to come to us, that Jesus says, I will return physically, bodily. Secondly, you'll notice, verse 23, that the timing of it is unpredictable. Some are going to say, look there. Others, look here. Do not go out or follow them. That it's going to happen suddenly. Now, you know, too, I... I mean, all the, the cults that emerge, you know, if you follow this kind of thing, there's a cult, and, and always at the core of those cults is somebody saying, you know, I think some, some crank who says, well, the, the earth, Jesus is going to come again on this date, and the gate, date passes, and then it discredits uh, real Christians, saying, well, do they even understand their own Bible? You say, verse 20, no one is going to be able to predict it. If somebody says Jesus will come like this or come like this or think that they can force the Lord's hand, no, it will happen suddenly, and the precise timing will be unpredictable. Thirdly, it will be unmistakable. You know, some think, well, you know, Jesus is going to come again, and that might be nice for those Christians, but I think I'll just carry on my normal business. No. Everybody will know. And the image he gives for this in verse 24, these three things is that of lightning in the sky. He says the, 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 Jesus comes again, it's going to be like lightning in the sky. It speaks of both suddenness, there's the lightning flash, and if you're in the path of the storm, you, you can't escape it. There it was. So once again, it's inevitable. Jesus will come again. When it happens, it'll be unmistakable, no avoiding it, and it's going to happen suddenly and unpredictably. This is why Barclay, the great commentator, I think this is a good way of putting it, he says, no man will foresee it, and all men will see it. Nobody will foresee it, that is the precise, hey, look here, come over here, this is the date. No, but everybody's going to see it when it comes. And by the way, these ideas of inevitability, unmistakability, unpredictability are the same three that we get in a passage like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. If you remember, we studied Paul, and so some will say, well, you know, is there a great disparity between, a lot of people will repeat this kind of thing. They say, well, you got Jesus over here, and you got Paul over here, and they really don't have much agreement. It's so interesting that in that letter, maybe 15 years after Jesus was on the cross, Paul uses the same kind of idea. Jesus will come again. It's guaranteed that Jesus will return physically again. He will do so in a sudden manner that cannot be predicted or hastened by any one of us. And when he comes, nobody's going to miss it. So, uh, Christ's return. Inevitable, unmistakable, unpredictable. All right, third point where we're going to spend most of our time and no doubt where our minds go is that Jesus' return in power will be associated. It will be, it will be the moment when perfect justice is executed, that today's passage is about the execution of perfect justice. So a couple of uh, preface comments on this, and then we'll get into the implications. But preface comment number one, that the language of Jesus coming again to judge comes from his own lips. So I can't tell you, again, this is one of the things, I think just people in our cultural moment, they, they will repeat things that they pick up somewhere. They'll, they'll hear it and then just kind of repeat it without, uh, they'll say something like this. Jesus was such a good chap, 
uh, he would never judge anybody. I mean, he just, uh, you know, went around and, and never, never uh, dealt with any troubles and just was this nice guy. And this whole matter of, of judging wrong was a later invention of the church to wield power. Have you ever heard something like that? Well, we all know, like Constantine and the Romans, you know, they took this nice Jesus chap who was just down there kind of, you know, mingling with the people, and they built it up into this grand thing about Jesus judging the world. Say, so we... we we can't do that. Uh, Jesus here plainly tells us that he will come again to judge. And if I may press a bit harder on that, say, if you think it's just in Luke 17, that's also a great error that Jesus talks about this quite a bit, about his return to execute justice. Now, preface comment two, and again, we'll spend more time here, but if you look, he gives us two illustrations uh, famous illustrations from the history of the Israelites about what this day is going to be like. He talks about in first, verse 26, just as it was. So Jesus will come again, and then he says, just like it was in the days of Noah. Can you see that? In the days of Noah. Then verse 28, likewise, again, he's stacking up these illustrations, just as it was in the days of Lot. So he gives us two illustrations from Israel's history about what his return will be like. So preface comment number two, before we get into the implications, and again, because of where we're at culturally, Jesus is convinced that Noah, Lot, and Lot's wife were real people. Um, why do I bring that up? Because you'll have people say, well, you know, again, it's very hard. You know, you read in the Old Testament and you think, well, that was a long time ago and I think it's, uh, you know, ancient Near Eastern mythology and isn't it just a nice story? And now, if you're in Christ, then, I mean, of course, there are no knockdown arguments, but I think this is pretty close to a knockdown argument that Jesus believes that Noah was a real person, Lot was a real person, Lot's wife was a real person, and he believes in what? A, a, a global flood of judgment, and he believes that Sodom was suddenly and supernaturally destroyed by fire. That if we allow Jesus to be the proper interpreter of Scripture, then we do not have the luxury of dismissing uh, anything as myth when he says this really happened. And so far to say, I'm going to stack up two illustrations from Genesis so that we understand the heavy implications about the decision to enter God's kingdom, to receive Jesus and enter his kingdom. So what are the illustrations doing? Why does he bring up Noah and Lot? He does so because those would be two instances of God's perfect justice, the execution of God's perfect and good judgment. So you remember the stories, right? Noah, I have very few bad days. You all are such a kind congregation, so I don't think about this. But sometimes when I need a bit of encouragement, I think of Noah. You know, could you imagine? <laughs> I need this many boards. Really? Okay. Better, you need this many nails and lots of pitch. And every day, what's this guy doing? And he'd say, we're a wicked people that we've turned on God. Repent. He's, he's provided a way out. Will you come to God by faith? Will you turn to him and stop your wicked ways? Come, get on the boat. Noah, you've got to be kidding. It's not rained here in weeks. You think that there's going to be that much water where everything's going to die? Give me a break. No, come on. No, you don't understand. God's provided a way. Will you repent? Will you return? Will you accept his salvation? No thanks, Noah. And as the children's song goes, the rains came down, 
and the floods came up, and it was too late. And people see that story, and they say, what a cruel and angry God. What a mad God to do that to all those people. Say those people had a chance to turn and to come to receive the gracious provision that God gave them. How about Lot? Second illustration. You know, Sodom was a terrible place, uh, a very wicked place, widespread sexual immorality. God makes, in this case, Lot his preacher. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we're in a bad place here. Can we see our sin? Can you see that God says we can escape the destruction? We just have to leave, and there's a way for all of us to be saved, but we have to come to him and trust his word and receive the salvation that he's offering us. Will you please come? You remember Lot's son-in-laws. There's a little line in Genesis 19. Lot's son-in-laws thought he was joking. Jesting is the word in my ESV. Say, well, Lot, you've got to be kidding. We believe in the laws of nature, right? Uh, Uniformity, if I'm using the right word, you scientists, the laws of nature are uniform. Are you telling us that this city is going to be swiftly destroyed in an event that's outside natural phenomena? Yes, God's given you a warning. Come, repent, turn, accept salvation. Too late. And God's justice was once again perfectly executed. So, Jesus gives us two illustrations. He's coming again. It's inevitable. It'll be unpredictable, yet unmistakable. And when it happens will be the moment when Jesus executes perfect and just judgment upon every person. So, implications here, three implications of this. Again, heavy passage. Implication number one Jesus wants us to think very deeply about our attachment to material things over against eternal things. So you can see in both both verses, uh, you know, 28, for example, well, that's the example with Lot, but he says the same thing in regards to Noah. So just as it was in the days of, of Noah, what are they doing? Verse 27, they're eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. Then verse 28, what were they doing in the days of Lot? They were eating, drinking, buying, selling, plants. In other words, what he's saying is that they, the, the folks there were just kind of blindly going through life uh, doing normal things, just saying, well, I don't know about God. He's not very real, or if he is real, he's not to be taken seriously. And I, you know, I don't know about this idea of a, you know, one coming to rescue. No thanks. They, they continue to attach themselves to the material, uh, the material progress of their city. Or again, you know, same idea. The person's on their housetop, and the person on the housetop sees the day of judgment and says, oh, you know, let me go downstairs in my house and gather my most important things. Jesus says, no, you won't be thinking about that and there won't be time. That we should be thinking about eternal things. How about verse 32? I was thinking about this, you know, back in Sunday school, you know, everybody would remember, uh, you know, you get a, a candy if you remember a Bible verse and everybody chose John 11, you know, Jesus wept, you know, two words. <laughs> I said, I want to know that I would, you know, there's some kids in here today. You could impress your Sunday school teacher with just three words. Say, Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife, right? <laughs> remember Lot's wife. So three-word verse, remember Lot's wife. Interesting. You remember Lot's wife? Lot's wife originally responds to the message that she leaves the city. But what she does, if you remember, that she turns around 
and a movement that's longing to be back in Sodom. And she doesn't make it. She's turned to a pillar of salt. And some people, again, they, they, they'll seize on this, say, look at that God, he's so mad, he just, he just uh, goes right and, and does this terrible thing. Say, the problem wasn't Lot's wife, you know, where she was geographically. The problem was the condition of her heart, that she'd been rescued, and she said, I actually, I, quite, I was having quite a good time in Sodom. It was quite a good place to live. All that indulgence. And I worry in my own heart sometimes that I have a lot in common, actually, with Lot's wife. That I said that prayer today like you. In fact, I said it twice, even at the 9 o'clock. I said it four times, come to think of it. Four times I said, God, your kingdom come. Do I mean that? My life's pretty comfortable in Avon, to be honest. Hey, good church family, good friends, nice things. Do I really mean that I long for the day for my king to return, to make all things right? Or am I like Lot's wife? I got an eye over my shoulder. Say, I don't want to leave. And maybe this is a lesson we don't learn until it's time that we are nearing death and called home to say, yes, Lord Jesus, come. I want to be with Jesus. So implication number one, let's think carefully about our attachment to material things over against eternal things that I'll show in a moment. It doesn't mean getting rid of material things. It just means having a heart of openness and that real prayer that, Lord Jesus, I long to be with you. I long to have you come again. Second implication, very, very sobering now, that we see in this passage that salvation is offered to individuals and that judgment is individualized. Look at verses 34 and 35 again, that there's going to be, when Jesus comes again, there's going to be a husband and wife in bed. And one of them's going to be saved and one of them's going to be judged. There's going to be two women doing a normal job. And that time, you see here, they're grinding at the mill. There's two women who are sitting in uh, cubicles next to each other. One will be saved and one will be judged. So we see some who've read this passage and they've said, well, we've got to stop doing all kinds of uh, normal activities. Let's just stay forever in the church and quit our jobs and become a monastery. Say, no, I don't think it's that. It's saying that as we receive Jesus, we still perform our duties. And uh, a lot of that uh, overlaps with what non-believers will do. But the language here is one, and when Jesus talks about this, stay with me here, is language of, of separation. He talks a lot about this. Sheep, goats, wheat, tares. One, the other. One, the other. Separation. What's the separation? It's those who said, I'm not listening to this about God offering salvation. I'm doing life on my own. I'm a pretty good guy. I'll justify myself. And the other group, the members of this church, we're great sinners. And we see that God's opened our eyes to receiving Jesus, my Savior. And my life really belongs to him. Those are the two groups, death and life. No thanks to God receiving Jesus. And on this matter of justice and judgment, we're at this incredible cultural moment where I've never heard so much talk of justice and judgment. Every group seems to be clamoring for judgment and justice. Say, we want justice, justice for this, justice for that, judgment for that. And in a way, right, that, that, again, these are a lot of people who would really disagree with my approach, our approach. We want justice, we want judgment, you gotta pay, pay, pay. And I would say, actually, we're not far off, that we Christians long for just justice and judgment too. The one key difference is that if there is 
a longing for perfect and pure justice, a perfect execution of justice, then I got to bring myself under that too. <laughs> that I can't say, I want justice for those and those and those. You got to make this right. I'm pretty good, but you're bad. Say, no, if it's clear and perfect justice, I'm under it too. That we'd all say, I'm not perfect, right? It's kind of a saying, well, I'm not perfect. We even, some of us go a, a short a bit of data and say, yeah, I'm imperfect. And so there is a clamoring. There is a longing for perfect and pure justice. The problem is that we're all guilty. Who's going to make it out? And God says, no one makes it out, but I've put forth graciously and kindly the Lord Jesus that whoever would receive him would be saved. Third implication, I'll be brief here, but how about this last question? So Jesus will come again. It will be a time of perfect justice. Every person's guilty. But the kingdom of God is in the midst when we come encounter Jesus, that we're, it's all within grasp. What, what about the last question, verse 37? I should, so the logical question, right? Where, where Lord? Where will the judgment take place? Where will this justice take place? Now, here, here on that, then Jesus responds in a way that's kind of cryptic. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, here's my big takeaway this week. I read at least 10 interpretations of what Jesus could mean by that. Where, Lord? Well, where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. And instead of going through all 10, I think I'd save you the trouble, and, and I'm confident saying this. You know what they're all agreed upon? This is not a pretty picture. This is not a nice thing. You don't try to, to be around that. You know, like, oh, they're the corpses, they're the vultures in. Oh, let me get, get up in there. No. <laughs> that it's not pleasant. It is the natural destiny of every person to take the breath of life, the minds that we've been given, the bodies that we've been given, and say, God, I'm going to do life on my own terms, to say with Paul and Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the truth. We await an inevitable judgment. It's coming. But it's not too late. In the same way with Noah and the ark, with the same way of Lot's preaching, hey, there's a way out. Well, here is God putting forth Jesus that we can receive him and be saved. And that, friends, is why we really can end this heavy sermon uh, on a wonderfully glorious positive note. The cross. The cross that we'll celebrate at the Lord's Supper, that the provision has been made. It's all of him and none of us. And for every person here today to hear, sit under this passage has the chance to accept Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, to delight in Jesus, to delight in the grace that's been offered. And we can have confidence. You say, well, again, go back to verse 22. Is this a positive passage or a negative passage? I would argue if you're a Christian, this is a wonderfully positive passage. Look again at verse 22. There will be days when the followers of Jesus long to see his return because we know that only in him will all things be reconciled and will this hard and often disappointing world be put right and that we have this wonderful Savior who's rescued us by his blood. So I'll pray. The men will come up, and I will give instructions on the great celebration before us. Father, thank you for the clarity of this passage, a very countercultural. Um, but Lord, I even think that some non-Christians see this truth when they talk about the right side of history, that there is a right side of history, that those who would accept your terms, which is beholding the man on the cross, your only begotten son. 
And so, Lord, help us to see that for the short time we're here, that we get to be the church, that we will face hardship, that we will face rejection, that we're not uh, thinking in terms of a moral majority, but rather in terms of a faithful witness. But, Lord, you will come again, and you will execute perfect justice. And, Lord, help us to see that when you execute perfect justice, that that doesn't make me blame everybody else, but actually I see, I see my own crookedness and appreciate all the more the provision that you've given in the Lord Jesus himself. So may this be a reality among us. Uh, may we honor you and glorify you, and may others be drawn to you.